0: Regeneration Topic, a podcast by the Osteology Foundation.
1: Okay, hello everyone. A very good afternoon to you. We are here today with Professor Daniel Thoma from the University of Zurich. Um, Daniel is one of the superstars in soft tissue augmentation using the soft tissue substitutes. And it is an absolute pleasure and honor for me to be here in this interview. Thank you, Daniel, so much for accepting our invitation and being with us here today.
0: Thank you so much, Yahweh. I feel very honoured and uh, I will start to blush um, having (laughs) (laughs) heard your introduction. But thank you. It's a great pleasure being part of it.
1: Well, so today we have uh, one of your key publications that we would like to focus on. And this paper explored the volumetric changes that occurred after augmenting soft tissue at an edentulous site. And our paper um, that we want to look at today is on soft tissue volume augmentation by the use of collagen-based matrices, a volumetric analysis. This paper was published in the Journal of Clinical Periodontology in 2010. That is about 11 years ago. I thought it was a very interesting read because it looked at a very novel way of assessing soft tissue volume over time. So, but before we really like dive into the paper, I am curious about your research journey. How did a clinician like yourself, who is very trained in um, prosthodontics and restorative dentistry, and now you are one of our key names in research on soft tissue augmentation. So what sparked this interest in soft tissue augmentation?
0: That's a very good question. Well, being a prosthodontist, maybe I have to go back. I got a a training in uh, prosthodontics, but also implant dentistry. So my clinical work as well is somehow in between prosthodontics and uh, implant dentistry. And uh, very early on, I started to understand as well that whenever you have to restore for, for example, an implant, that dealing with soft tissue is of key importance. and I think when we go back maybe 20 or 25 years, the issue with implants has always been the bone. And I think only over time we started to understand that in order to get a really good outcome, and predominantly talked in early days only about aesthetics, it was so important to have a, a good soft tissue environment, maybe sufficient volume. And I think At that time, of course, we only had uh, the autogenous grafts, and that's one of the reasons that uh, we did actually a lot of autogenous grafts that we also wanted to switch, of course, uh, into having maybe an alternative. So having a prosthodontist's mind and having the view of a prosthodontist, this actually uh, drove me into a topic that, uh, well, I thought was of key importance when uh, we dealt with aesthetic cases.
1: So, if I could tap on your research expertise and ask, how did you formulate your line of work in this area on soft tissue augmentation?
0: Well, I think it when when I look back and um, what I explained before is that we actually did a lot of autogenous graftings, you know, in pontic areas around implants, and we always tried to have some evidence based dentistry. When I look back, um, maybe the mid 2000s, there wasn't really a lot of publications or scientific evidence why you really should do and perform these interventions in the clinic. So in the early beginning, I really focused on an understanding maybe as well, but also, well, try to answer questions why it is important to augment soft tissues. And then, of course, I also started to understand because I dealt with these patients having undergone these surgeries that the use of autogenous tissue was associated with a lot of morbidity. So mm-hmm. having been treating patients, some of these patients I have treated maybe for one and a half or two years. After the end of the treatment, they usually ask, yeah, what what was really good or what was the disadvantage of the treatment? Would you do it again? And quite interestingly, even though Many of these patients got a lot of surgeries. Um, quite often, they named the palate where I harvested the tissue as probably the worst moment during the treatment. Mm. And uh, that really drove me into an interest, scientific interest as well, into maybe developing also soft tissue soft substitute tissue, or at least try, well, to do some research in this area.
1: So, are there critical factors or maybe key people? Who has helped in your research uh, career?
0: Well, key people certainly were my mentors. This is uh, Christoph Hemelay and Ronnie Jung from uh, our department and then uh, also quite early on um, I was a research scholar in uh, 2007 and 2008 in uh, the U.S. in San Antonio with uh, Professor David Cochran and uh, I still consider this as a. Well, as a great opportunity as a young researcher to really work with, uh, well, he's an exceptional guy and he did a lot of research, predominantly also in the preclinical area. And that uh, really helped me also to perform the early on studies.
1: So for the the clinical uh, expertise in harvesting the soft tissue grafts, did you learn that during your stay in San Antonio? No, actually I got...
0: Yeah, no, actually, I got the training, the clinical training I got here in Zurich, where I did my postgraduate studies focusing um, on uh, implant dentistry and prosthodontics. And part of it was also soft tissue augmentation. So that what I was trained here, we had a couple of faculty members and we're always doing the surgeries with them. So that's how I learned it.
1: So back to our publication, you actually used the uh, male hound dog model. Yes. And I suppose it might be something that you picked up during your time in, uh, with Dr. Cochrane. How was it like working with the animals in this project?
0: Well, quite early on in my career, I had uh, been working with, uh, or, yeah, with uh, animals or preclinical studies. And... Um, David Cochrane, he actually had a lot of experience. He ran a lot of studies with this type of dark model. So at that time, um, we wanted to evaluate a newly developed collagen matrix for soft volume augmentation. And then of course it was ideal because we had the background here in Zurich, we started the development. And then of course I was there and I was able um, to to get support from him also, and I was discussing a lot on how to use or how to apply a model, how to develop a model. I think what is important at that time, there was no model available in the literature, because there is somehow a gap when you look at uh, preclinical models, and we had to use a preclinical model because the product was not on the market. Um, there were no studies dealing with soft tissue augmentation in a preclinical model except the ones from the early 70s, from caring. And um, they had a completely different aim. They didn't want to evaluate volume changes. It was more about uh, the understanding um, of uh, how transplants perform um, uh, in an oral environment. So we had to develop something completely new. And that's basically how it started.
1: So if you need to do another study with an improved version of a collagen matrix. Would you use this dog model again?
0: I think in the meantime, the, the dog model that we used at that time is quite well established. And of course, we, we learned as well that uh, there, were some good, there were some advantages, but also some disadvantages. And we, of course, further refined the model, but I think it's now a quite established model um, it's a model that is very close uh, to a clinical situation. And then when using a model, it's I think it's of key importance that the model is very close to a clinical situation. So it's of key importance that you have a certain clinical situation that you can also use in a preclinical model. And of course, it has to be tailored to a product with a specific indication. So for example, if you have an indication of volume augmentation, you basically need a model that is ideal to show the performance or effectiveness of the treatment or the product as well.
1: So you mentioned a little bit about the disadvantages of this model. Uh, is there something that you could share with us? What was the difficulty in, or the disadvantage of using this dog model?
0: Well... When you look at the model, I mean, what we wanted to do is we wanted to specifically focus on a soft tissue volume augmentation. And uh, in order to do that, we, we chose to have chronic rich defects. Now, the disadvantage of having chronic rich defects is that it's not so standardized. I mean, if you want to have standardized defects, it would have been acute defects. But if you use acute defects, and then later on do some soft tissue augmentation, or basically at the same time, you would have a bone regeneration, but also soft tissue regeneration. So the outcome is based on hard and soft tissue regeneration. So therefore, we chose a chronic rich defect model, but the disadvantages, it's not that standardized. So I think that's That's probably the main disadvantage of using this model.
1: Would the statistical methods help to uh, ease out these differences in your baseline defect size?
0: Well, I guess it's, it's part of it is statistics. And the other part is also, you know, how many sites do you choose or how many sites can you use? In this specific model, we use three sites and they all had different sizes and of course you can run statistics and you will find out in some of these sites the effect may be less in others there may be a greater effect so of course you have to run statistics in order to even out um, uh, the effect of the site as well.
1: Yeah so in this study design which was really interesting you had like three different groups so we had our test which is our collagen matrix we had the standard, the gold standard uh, connective tissue graph, and also a control. And you did mention about the difference in the defect sizes, but I think with your randomization, it it helps to try to eliminate as best as possible or to create a good study design. When you fixated the graphs into these defect sites, um, in the paper, it stated that you place a titanium pin right in the middle of the defect. And I wonder the use of this titanium pin. Is it something similar to how we do uh, guided bone regeneration? We try to tent it up a little bit, yes. you know, make it fatter. Yes. <laughs> yeah.
0: Well, it's a very interesting observation. Um, of course, I mean, one of the main advantages of having a preclinical model is that you can also always run histos. So you're going to have histos lights. But if you have a chronic rich defect, let's say that's a width of maybe six to eight millimeter, how do you really find the center of your defect when you once you start preparing the histoslides? And in order to do that, we place the titanium pin because that could easily be found. So uh, there has been a second publication on the histos. And when you look at the histoslide, you will actually find the titanium pin. But it's an interesting observation and uh, yeah, maybe it could really help to have also some tenting screws when you want to try to regenerate soft tissues. But it was a different name.
1: Okay, <laughs> yeah. So in your paper too, when you were um, fixating your collagen uh, matrices and also the soft tissue graphs, you actually folded them together. So like the collagen matrix and the CTG were folded and before you sutured them onto the lingual flap. So I wonder, do you like suture them together so that they become like a really thick layer because you are looking at uh, volume changes and when you fixate it to the lingual flap, is it something that you prefer to do even in a clinical setting?
0: Well, you know, when you look at the preclinical model, what we observe is once we have these chronic ridge defects, They were huge. So clinically looking at the scenario we thought okay if we just place a connective tissue graft with a thickness of maybe two to three millimeters may not be sufficient because we expected to see a lot of change. So that was the reason why we folded it and of course we had to do it for the matrices as well as for the connective tissue grafts. When placing a graft, I think it's of key importance to suture it towards the lingual side, also clinically. And actually the procedure, the clinic procedure in this preclinical model is the same of what we did in the clinic as well. So of course we transferred the information we had in the clinic also to the preclinical model. Um, I still prefer to suture the matrices or connective tissue grafts to the lingual or palatal side. And the reason is actually, this is probably the only stable region. So I'm always a bit afraid when I fixate it towards the buccal flap, the buccal flap is actually moving. So I'm always afraid that I'm not sure where uh, the final position of the graft will be. So also clinically, I still prefer to fix it towards the lingual side.
1: So um, when I was a student, (laughs) so when I was a resident, we learned to like do cross mattress. Uh, sutures, so like how we fix our free gingival grafts, would it be beneficial to have this additional cross mattress suture right on your graft so that it gets like tied down to the bed?
0: Yeah, I think it's, it's a bit of a different indication. At the end, what we try to obtain is we try to have a stable augmented site. And of course you don't wanna have your graft moving so that's one of the reasons why you use these crisscross sutures uh, in a clinical scenario where you have an open healing with a free changeable graft. When I look at um, a pouch and a split flap that we traditionally use when we submerge a graft, I don't think it, there is really a need to have a further fixation of the graft.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Also, um, depending on the material you're going to use, like when you use a connective tissue graft, you can probably not compress it. So, of course, here you could use one of these crisscross sutures. However, use a collagen matrix, you basically do not want to have a lot of pressure or compression. So, personally, I have a feeling uh, it's not really a good idea, but having it uh, fixed to the lingual side and then uh, having primary wound closure, I think clinical disease is quite stable.
1: Is there a reason why we do not want too much pressure on our collagen matrices?
0: Well, this is something we learned during our journey and I mean we have done a good number of pre as well as clinical study and while well, early on when we started treating cases, clinical cases with patients as well, um, and the matrix we we thought and we had maybe a feeling that too much compression wasn't really a good idea. There were some very early on uh, studies also in mice where it basically showed that prototypes of these collagen matrices with, uh, that were quite dense um, didn't really allow for you know, uh, ingrowth of connective tissue. And uh, we have recently done a study by, it's going to be soon published by my colleague uh, Stefan Bienz, uh, where he really showed that when you start compressing the matrices, the outcome is actually worse. Mm. So uh, there's probably more remodeling, less tissue ingrowth. So it actually is in line of what our feeling was in the clinic was. So we try not to compress the matrices.
1: Oh, interesting. <laughs> totally not what we should do. Okay. Now it. The paper was also one of the first to actually describe the use of an optical scanner to try to detect you know, the little changes that happens in the surface contour, in the volume of all these grafted sites. How did this idea come about?
0: Well, um, I think when we look at volume augmentation, um, of course, you want to somehow assess how much gain you got. Now, traditionally, we'll probably, you know, use transmucosal probing or something, but uh, our understanding was, this doesn't really reflect what we did. So we tried to introduce a technique and this technique of basically using an intraoral scanner to scan the areas at different time points. Well, there were some early on studies published by Vindish 2007, where in our department, a technique was developed how you're able to well to really measure in a three-dimensional way, way uh, the volume changes. So, of course, we then were quite fortunate we could apply the same technique also in this preclinical model.
1: So it has been 11 years. Did anything change? Because in your paper, you described the limitations of having to pull the models, to scan the models. So what do you do different now?
0: Well, I mean, this was the start. And of course, we had all this powder and all this stuff. And I think when we look now at uh, intraoral scanner in general, you don't want to use a powder anymore, also in a clinical scenario. But of course, we, we have further developed this model um, into that, also for the volume measurements, of course, you always still need to scan. So you can still need uh, or use an intraoral scanner, or you can take a general a regular impression and then just having a lab scanner but I think the key is also the software so early on we used a very special version of a software that was developed uh, uh, by one of our colleagues here uh, in the restorative department that was specifically designed for uh, this intraoral scanner and then of course since we ran uh, quite a lot of studies we also wanted to have our own software that was specifically designed to really measure these volume changes. So now in the meantime, we have published a a series of studies actually using a specific software tool that allows us uh, to really focus on our volume changes. Also quite fast, it's uh, quite predictable and reliable. So of course we have optimized the scanning. We have also optimized the software.
1: Wow, I think you need to share with us the name of your software. (laughs) Okay, it feels like it's a secret.
0: No, it's not, it's
1: not,
0: but I think you will always find it in the more recent publications.
1: All right. So I'm actually, personally, I'm happy to know that the soft tissue substitutes work, you know, just as well as the connective tissue grafts, because if I imagine that I'm a patient, right, I, I really do not want another, you know, opening in my palate. But you know, as, as a patient, we will always be concerned about the long-term stability of this, uh collagen matrices because after all, they are all xenogenic in nature. And based on your work in this field, do the uh, collagen matrices actually behave like the connective tissue graphs over time? For example, maybe do they thicken over time?
0: Um, well, you see, developments in this field, I mean, they they started maybe early 2000 or, yeah, late 2000s. And uh, of course, it took some time also to be able to have products on the market and being able to evaluate them and assess them also in the clinic. And then, of course, what you are mentioning is of key importance. When we do a treatment, we want to have at least long-term stability. I'm not sure whether you really want to have an increase over time. Um, from what we see now based on the clinical studies that whenever we augment tissues with a collagen matrix, uh, but also with a connective tissue graft, we get some stability over time. So meaning if you perform this procedure, uh, maybe in a pontic site, or if you do it around the implants. So once you insert your final restoration, you actually get a quite stable volume. And this is actually what we want. And apart from having a volume stable volume, we also see that we can maintain periimplant health, and I think that's the second key parameter.
1: So, in the paper, um, it wasn't explicitly mentioned like what product that you use for the collagen matrices, but I suppose it would be the FibroGuide from Geischlich. and since you were looking at volumetric changes. Could you share with us the features of this material and the clinical situations that you will actually use this material?
0: Yes. Well, um, what we see in the publication, of course, these were prototypes of a product that uh, is now called and is on the market. And of course, at this early time, point, we had to work and deal with prototypes. So the original idea was really to have a further indication of soft tissue substitutes because At that time when we started with these studies there were only substitutes available of various origins for open healing like as an alternative to free gingival graft so basically what you want is if you want to augment the volume you need something that is stable in a three-dimensional way still has some elasticity and of course over time you want to have some remodeling that's probably something similar we would see also with an autogenous connective tissue graft. And I think when we now look also at histos, we can see some turnover, we'll see some remodeling, and um, it's difficult to make a guess because we don't really have longer term data with histos, but I would make a guess that over a year or even a bit more, there is probably a complete, complete replacement and remodeling. So you probably find connective tissue graft in the area where originally the scaffold, the collagen matrix was.
1: Wow, so it's totally like our own after one year.
0: It's certainly like our own tissue. Yes.
1: So if we were to augment an edentulous site in preparation for implant restoration, when would you perform this soft tissue augmentation procedure? Is it always a simultaneous placement with the soft tissue graft?
0: I think it depends a bit on um, the concept. You know, there are these four time points when we place a dental implant. And uh, I think for every of these specific time points, there is clinically probably an ideal time point. Um, There has been a recent systematic review basically looking at the effect of soft tissue augmentation. And also, depending a bit on the implant timing time point, there wasn't really a difference. my feeling is always that, or clinically, I prefer actually to, to have soft tissue augmentation as a separate step. And this is mostly due to the fact that uh, we perform these procedures mainly in the aesthetic zone. And I think when you want to augment, um, it's of key importance to maintain the papillus, um, or at least do not have an incision in the area of the papillas. So whenever you augment on the buccal side, there's going to be a lot of tension. So I always try to have primary wound closure, which means at the end that it's going to be a separate procedure. But of course, it of course also works uh, in combination with implant placement. It works in combination uh, with GPR as well. You just don't see the effect of the, the grafting anymore. I mean, you don't know whether it's the augmented volume is then based on GBR, whether it's based on the soft tissue. But personally, I prefer to have it as a separate procedure in order to, to maintain the areas of the papilla.
1: So then when would we go in again and put our crowns? You know, that's the key question. <laughs>
0: yeah, that's a key question. It's an important. And uh, I think also when we look at the studies, um It appears to be of key importance that whenever we augment tissue or soft tissue, that at a certain time, we continue with the treatment. If you have it submerged, you would probably do a bottom connection. If you combine it with a bottom connection, probably then restore it. And I think the time point is ideal probably between six and uh, weeks and maybe two and a half months, something like that. Mm. Certainly what is not a good idea is to wait uh, much longer. Because when I look at my own cases, also cases of studies that we did, and uh, when we were waiting a bit longer, we start to lose actually volume. Mm. I think that's probably the same situation can also be explained that if you're not using your tissue, so if you're augmenting and not use it, and there is no, I mean, there is no loading, or I don't know how we want to call it, um, it disappears. And I think something similar, we have also seen with bone augmentation. So if you do a primary bone augmentation and the patient is now coming back for uh, quite some time, we're basically start losing all the augmented volume. And I think the same applies for soft tissue as well.
1: So the answer to this million dollar question for all our viewers, six to 10 weeks. Okay. <laughs> when we start connect. Personally, I think
0: that's uh, an ideal time. Yes. Good.
1: So do you have any clinical tips for our viewers on the handling of this uh, collagen matrix so that you know we can achieve good clinical success?
0: Well, when we deal with these interventions, I think there are well two important points. Number one is we should be familiar with the procedure in general. I mean, we should be able to prepare a split thickness flap because at the end you want to place the graph submerged. And the second is we're dealing with maybe something that we have not used before. And there is always a learning curve. So usually I suggest whenever we perform a procedure or use a new material that we're going to use it in a site that may not be in the zone of aesthetic priority. And also to allow us to have a learning curve, not only for the product, but maybe also for the procedure itself. I think these are the two key parameters.
1: So after we gone through all the way to having our connections and our restoration, but right after your soft tissue augmentation procedure what is your post surgical protocol like for your patients what are your recommendations for our colleagues you know in terms of when do you take out your sutures how often do you review the patient uh when can the patient actually eat something <laughs>
0: um yeah i think the post operative Procedure is um, quite standardized. Uh, patients are gonna rinse with chlorhexidine. I'm not gonna describe any antibiotics, just uh, maybe some painkiller that a patient can use for one and two days. I usually recommend to use something the first day and the next day in the in the morning, and then it's up to their decision. But usually having such a small localized site where we did an intervention, they usually don't feel any pain um on the second day of course i always inform them that uh, the swelling is going to increase we always see a swelling because we also always over augment and uh, i always tell the patient that it's going to last for uh, two or three days there's going to be an increase and then there's going to be a slight decrease over the next few days they're not allowed to, to clean the area with the toothbrush therefore they have a chlorhexidine, uh, rinsing solution and then I will remove the sutures between seven and ten days. And then usually I recommend to rinse again, maybe for two or three days before they're allowed to start the cleaning again. I think this oh. is what I usually do.
1: Thank you. Now, if your patient is a smoker, would it be any different? Would would you like ask them to like stop smoking completely? for this period of time?
0: Well, as we all know, there are some risks associated with the general health and also maybe medication the patient takes or whether they're, or not they're smokers. So what I usually do is I just inform the patients. I'm also careful about what expectations I might have. And uh, usually when we perform these procedures, we already did other procedures. So to some extent, we have a feeling how the situation in such a patient heals. I think uh, smoking is not the only one. It's also the clinical situation, you know, pre-surgery. And I always try to, of course, I always take pictures. I look at the situation and I try to estimate how the healing would be. And based on how the situation looks like pre-surgery, post-surgery, I will always inform the patient accordingly. So, of course, I do surgeries in smokers, but I think at the end, it's, a, it's about informing the patients. That's important.
1: So, in, you know, like based on everything that you have learned, you know, as a clinician and also as a researcher on the soft tissue uh, substitutes, do you think that in time to come, there will be one substitute? that would fit all clinical situations, and maybe, okay, maybe can go against, you know, a little bit of this biological principle where we need primary wound closure, because that's difficult to achieve <laughs> for some of us, or well, in some cases, you think that it would be feasible in, in time to come.
0: Well, at the end, we could ask, what would we like to have, and, um. I think we are at the stage where we have specific products for specific indications, but there are still quite some indications. One of them you mentioned, there may be an indication where you wanna have open healing combined with the volume augmentation. And of course, currently there is nothing available except the connective tissue graph. But if I look into the future, what would I like to have? I think I would like to have something patient specific. Because what we discussed before as well is that the healing may be so different in between patients. So in some patients, it might be ideal to have, I don't know, something that is maybe denser when we think about volume augmentation. In others, it might be less dense. And in some patients, we might like to have something that allows us for an open healing. So I think products will diversify and it will help us to choose the right product for the right indication. I don't think we should have a product that is made for everything because just the indications are so different.
1: It feels like it's personalized dentistry, just like we customize our periodontal maintenance visits.
0: Exactly, yeah. exactly. And there we, we might have a better understanding. I mean, you, you're talking about the right thing. When we schedule maintenance, we're not scheduling all patients just after one year and... Uh, Some of these patients, they they come back maybe after three months. So I guess uh, the same applies also to surgical techniques and and, and materials that we use. It should be really tailored for the patient.
1: Now, one last question from me. (laughs) Okay, Do you have any advice for a young dentist who wants to start training or learning about soft tissue augmentation, whether it's the autogenous grafts or with the soft tissue substitutes? What would be your key advice to that person?
0: I guess the key advice is always to to go for a postgraduate studies, (laughs) Um, to stay for a certain period of time um, at the university, because it's not only about the clinic procedure, it's also about the understanding why we do it and how we should do it. Um, So therefore, For me, it's always important that there is an understanding also about science. So even if you wanna improve your clinical skills, it's good to have some knowledge about science. So therefore a university is ideal. Other options are that you're taking master classes and um, ideally you have someone uh, close to you or maybe in your city that helps you also teach. So doing searches just by yourself makes it very difficult to look really maybe at the details as well. But having maybe someone next to you that uh, can help you uh, do a better job.
1: Well, I think that is actually very very uh, critical and important point. You know, it's, uh I learned so much. <laughs> I feel like oh, so much thoughts yeah. is like going through my head right now. So, but I would really really like to thank you for your time and, and this very open and candid sharing of all the knowledge and your learning experiences and also the clinical tips that you have shared with us today. Uh, I look forward and I'm sure everybody else too to uh, learn more from you through your studies and also your presentations on the big you know, platforms. I hope you stay safe you know, in this pandemic and hopefully Maybe very soon we can see you in person in all the meetings. Uh, Once again, thank you so much for your time today.
0: Thank you so much. Um, uh, I think you really asked the right questions. Um, It was interesting also for me to look back at maybe some of the publications, some discussions, and I think this is really what makes a day um, if you are able to discuss on, on such a high level and being asked the right questions. So thank you so much uh, for having me here. Thank you, Daniel. Thank you, John. Oral Regeneration Topic, a podcast by the Osteology Foundation.